This is the World War II Radio Podcast. A date which will live in infamy. This is London. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Go ahead, Berlin. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Welcome to the World War II Radio Podcast. This week, we have the NBC Morning News Report from April 18th, 1941, 80 years ago today, with updates on the war in London, Yugoslavia, Africa, and on the home front. The World War II Radio Podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production. If you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. You can also support the show by clicking on the link in the show notes and offering your financial support. Your donations help us continue to produce the podcast, and thanks to those of you who have already donated. Thanks for listening, and enjoy this week's episode of the World War II Radio Podcast. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Good morning, everyone. Today, Friday, April 18th, is the 593rd day of war. This morning, you're to hear from our reporters in Germany and England, and then Earl Godwin, our Washington Observer. First, go ahead, Berlin. Hello, NBC. This is Charles Lanius in Berlin. At noon today, that is about three hours ago, German time, Yugoslavia ceased to exist as a European nation. Noon was the hour agreed on for the capitulation of the Yugoslavian army to go into effect. Actually, what was left of the Yugoslav army after the 12-day German blitzkrieg surrendered unconditionally at 9 o'clock last night. But the capitulation wasn't to be effective until today at 12 o'clock. The remaining part of the Yugoslav territory has been occupied by the Germans, according to the high command. The Italians have come down the Dalmatian coast and have occupied Dubrovnik. So today, what looked... Two weeks ago looked like a fairly strong country with a strong army for its size, at least strong enough to challenge the German war machine, is just a war-torn piece of territory in southeastern Europe. Part of young Peter's uh, country is already under a new government, and it's a practical certainty that the rest will be carved up to fit into the Axis New Order plan. Negotiations for the surrender, I understand, were carried on with the commanders of the various remaining Yugoslav armies and not with the central government. On the Willemstrasse this morning, it was declared that this procedure was followed for the simple reason that the German government had no idea where the Yugoslavian government was. General Simovich is said to be in Athens, but there are other rumors that he has gone to Moscow. The whereabouts of young King Peter is also a mystery here at present. An official stated that the new order in the Balkans would begin to take shape very soon, but refused to comment further. Previously, it was declared officially that the Serbs would have nothing to say about the new ordering in the southeast. At the same time, it was announced that Germany is preparing to open their legation in Zagreb, the capital of New Croatia, which Germany and Italy both formally recognized last Tuesday. Incidentally, this town from now on will be called Agram again instead of Zagreb, 
which is the Yugoslavian name. It was also learned that the German ambassador to Turkey and Moscow had been called to Berlin. The veteran diplomat von Papen is on his way here from Ankara to discuss the Turkey situation. Ambassador von der Schulenberg, Germany's envoy to Moscow, is already here to report. Here in Berlin, we had visitors again early this morning. A brief German bulletin today says that a number of Royal Air Force planes approached Berlin, but that only a few of them succeeded in penetrating the air barrage around the capital. It adds that some fires were caused in residential quarters and that, again, cultural centers were damaged. The Germans claimed that six British planes were shot down, two of them near Berlin. I think I saw both of the planes that were shot down. One of them I watched while it circled the city, caught in the giant searchlights with anti-aircraft fire bursting all around it. As it made the circle, it lost height and was obviously in difficulties. It got lower and lower, and when it was almost on the horizon on the other side of the city, from where I was, it suddenly seemed to disappear altogether, and the searchlights went out. After what seemed to me to be about only 30 seconds, the whole sky where the plane had disappeared was lighted up with a huge flash, the kind of crashing plane which had burst into flames would make. The second plane hove into sight with smoke pouring from its tail. Still, it was able to navigate. It began to wobble. Then also in the searchlight beams, it began to dive and twist with the tail of smoke still trailing behind. As it got lower, the pilot apparently tried to right the machine, but it went into another dive. The last I saw of the plane, it wasn't a dive. Then some buildings obscured my view. The attacks weren't just confined to Berlin. The British bombed several other points in northern Germany during the night. But the Germans say the damage was slight. On their side, the German Air Force is said to have sent strong formations over England again. An important harbor town in the English south coast was bombed by waves of bombers, according to the Germans. The pilots say they dropped bombs of all calibers and caused much destruction in the shipyards and harbor installations. The bomb city isn't named in the special German bulletin. Down in Greece, the Germans are attacking the British and the Greeks, but there's very little information on how the fighting is going. It's said here, but unofficially, that the Greeks are weakening with the pressure from both the Germans and Italians. Now, with Yugoslavia cleared out of the way, the entire German forces in the southeast may be turned against the Greeks. Ask any German... And he'll tell you that the German armies will clean up in Greece in just as short order as they did in Yugoslavia. A little sidelight on French affairs was given out in the Willemstrasse today. According to this story, the French have released a number of political prisoners on Madagascar and other French islands. One of the released men is said to be Abdul Krim, the famous RIF leader who has been in Reunion Island for years. This is Charles Lanius in Berlin. I now return you to NBC in New York. Though our office in London was demolished in Wednesday night's raid, there hasn't been any interruption in our schedule of reports from that devastated city. And so our staff reporter is ready with his regular morning newscast. Go ahead, London. This is London, Ed Doy speaking. This is the day of the great inquest, a double inquest, one on the reverses in the Near East and one on the devastating air raid. The popular clamor for reprisals against the civilian population of Germany is drowned by the clamor for an inquest on the government. Tempers, not nerves, are undoubtedly frayed. Nobody is angry because he is afraid. A great many people are angry, however, 
because they feel the government isn't moving fast enough in all sorts of directions to get into a winning stride. The reserve Manchester Guardian suggests that in moments like these, a national government makes for the stifling of criticism. The members of the small all-party ginger group in the House of Commons have met to consider the formation of a national opposition. Members of the group include Lord Winterton, Emmanuel Shinwell, Norrin Bevan, Clement Davies, and Kenneth Lindsay. They want a bolder policy all along the line. In finance, manpower mobilization, shipping, agriculture, airplane production, and the construction of shelters. The Daily Herald also urges that Parliament ought to overhaul the whole situation. We hear the familiar cry from the armchairs of the complacency club, let us have no inquest, the paper states. It adds, quote, we don't want to hunt for scapegoats, but we cannot win this war unless we are prepared to learn from our mistakes, unquote. Some of the questions it asks are, how did the enemy contrive to land such a powerful force in Tripoli? How did they manage to land fuel supplies and men by air when the British controlled the important airdrome at Benghazi? It admits that the task of holding the Germans in Greece and Yugoslavia was difficult from the very beginning. But behind all these isolated and perfectly obvious clues to a major default, there lurks in the minds of many people a more fundamental flaw. These people believe that the major weakness of the Allies lies in the political diplomatic side of the war picture. There is a tendency to sit and wait for the enemy to, to make a, an attack and then pick out a suitable general to make a defensive stand. What is needed, therefore, is an offensive, aggressive policy. And this, in nearly all cases, has a political diplomatic basis. It includes the government's policy towards Vichy, France, and Spain. These people still want to know what is being done to hold French Morocco and Spanish Morocco, meaning Gibraltar. Iraq is looked upon as a major political, not military, blunder. The anger in more moderate form is shared also by the conservative Daily Telegraph. Whether or not our answer to the devastation of Wednesday night must be bombing reprisals on Germany, the paper insists that the only immediate answer is the production of more planes and yet more planes. We must make the air force so powerful, the telegraph urges, that the German industrial machine and German nerve power will be broken. The call is not only to workers at the bench and foundry. Everyone can contribute by reducing personal demands on supplies of labor, which factories need. The Daily Mail warns that all the people's efforts will be needed in the coming months. The RAF bombed Berlin last night. It was the heaviest attack yet made on the city. The Air Ministry stated that a number of very powerful bombs were dropped on targets in the center of the town. Fires were started, and it is said that a substantial amount of damage was certainly done. Mr. Herbert Morrison, Minister of Home Security, told the civil defense men and women that Berlin was bombed according to plan. Mr. Morrison also revealed that the new Sterling bomber was used on the raid in Berlin. <coughs> the RAF yesterday in daylight attacked Cherbourg and also merchant shipping. Bombs were dropped on targets in Holland, including Cologne and Rotterdam, and places in northwest Germany as well as Berlin. Eight British planes are missing from these operations. Raids on this country last night were directed mainly against Portsmouth. The attack was fairly heavy and lasted for most of the night. Casualties were light, says the communique, and damage not severe. There were activities in other districts, principally in the south, east, northeast, 
and in all these districts casualties were few and no substantial damage was done. Two German bombers were shot down. I return you now to the National Broadcasting Company in New York. That's the news abroad. And now Earl Godwin reports from our newsroom in Washington. Good morning, folks. Three United States senators are in the draft news today. You remember Senator Ellison Smith of South Carolina, who did not like it at all because the local draft board selected his son, who happens to be secretary of the Senate Committee on Agriculture. But the local board says a secretary to a Senate committee is not essential to our defense. Then come the two Delaware senators who have obtained deferment for relatives on the ground that they are essential to defense. Randolph Hughes, a 33-year-old nephew and secretary for Senator Hughes of Delaware, signed the certificate, and the Delaware local draft board placed Randolph Hughes in a deferred class. Senator James Tunnell said he helped his son, Robert, 26, to a class 2 deferment. In Delaware, a draft board there in Sussex County uh, on the ground that he operates a string of chicken farms, has 49,000 chickens, made him an essential to the national defense. And the reason I relate those to you is because, in contrast, here is a letter I received from a mother in Massachusetts who listens daily to this program. Senator Smith, said this mother, should not worry about his son as we all face the same thing in regard to our boys. My son has been a farmer for two years, and three years ago he was very ill. Being brought up on a farm, he got interested to go farming, so we let him have ten acres, so he started. He was doing well, selling vegetables to wholesale market, started a small fruit business, saved his money, and had 1,800 chickens. Also later, about 800 more. But that didn't make any difference to the draft board or to Uncle Sam. So the boy sold what he could at a loss and lost the rest, which were too small to sell. The grain man trusted him. We felt he had left the grain bill behind. So does the grain man. But he's lost all that he worked so hard for. He was wholly responsible for everything. We were sorry. We could not help him. But there is a family to take care of, and his father is getting on in years and old and isn't able to help. See what he faces when he comes out of the army. We thought the farmer was a very good soldier to help feed the people. Senator Smith mustn't feel badly about his son going because mine has gone and all his plans are gone too. I will watch with great interest Senator Smith's progress. You know, I think there's more that gets into the consciousness of that letter than in all the news from all the rest of the world together today. But however, to get back to formal news, the government is worried by the continued soft coal strike which cuts down industrial production. They can't run some of the plants without coal, you know. John Lewis, coal mine union chief, has that situation by the short hair, and the president may be asked to intervene. The House has before it the Vinson Bill, which prohibits strikes in defense industries until after a 25-day cooling-off period in which time every sort of persuasion will be used to settle problems without lockouts or strikes. The administration does not want such legislation yet, at least, the Vincent bill may pass the House, but it's quite likely to be smothered in the Senate, unless something entirely unforeseen occurs. Well, we may have a hot debate in the Senate today over that controversial convoy question. Senator Toby, that New Hampshire Republican, who's up in arms about the convoy matter, indicates he's going to discuss all phases of the matter on the floor of the upper house. 
and if he does, you may see or hear of fireworks. Toby believes we are practically convoying now and predicts shooting. When Earl Godwin says goodbye, that's all from Washington at this time. In Europe, it is already Friday afternoon. Reports of events that have taken place during the night and early morning are still coming into our newsroom. And for this reason, we suggest that you remain tuned to this station. In addition to our regular news periods, we will broadcast important bulletins as soon as they are received. This is the National Broadcasting Company.